0: Good morning. My name is Matt Kerber. I'm a pastor at City Reformed. It's good to be with you. We'll dismiss children for Children's Church. And as we do that, just a quick reminder, we're moving through a book of the Bible called the Acts of the Apostles, a history book that deals with the establishment and growth of the early church. As the book of Acts goes forward, it follows follows increasingly the story of the Apostle Paul as he travels throughout the world proclaiming the lordship of Jesus Christ, his resurrection, and establishing the church. However, in this last section of Acts, Paul does all of those things in prison. In this uh, section we're at today, it's Paul's really final, long, uh, uh, part of Paul's final uh, speech in the book of Acts. He's giving a defense before the governor of the region of uh, Judea. Uh, His name is Festus. He's a new governor. And he's been trying to figure out what to do with this Paul character who was left over from the prior administration. And so uh, he pulls in the help of his friend Agrippa, who's a nearby king known as an expert in Jewish affairs, who's going to help him make sense of the somewhat technical nuances of the religious charges that have been brought against Paul. As we looked at this last week, we saw Paul beginning a speech, and early on he emphasized something that he's emphasized in every speech in acts, which is his testimony to the resurrection of Jesus. And we spent some time last week talking about what that meant and why it was so important. This week, Paul shows us our response, the proper response, to encountering the risen Lord Jesus, which is to change, to change allegiances We could capture what is going on in this passage in many different ways with a single word by saying conversion. Paul speaks of his own conversion. He talks of the conversions of others, and even here in the royal court, he calls for those listening to him to respond to Jesus in repentance and faith. I'll read the passage, and then we'll look at these things together. Uh, Acts chapter 26, verses 9 to 32. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day, I have had the help that comes from God. And so I stand here testifying both to small and great saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. And as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words, For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly. For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains, Then the king rose, and the governor, and Bernice, and those who were sitting with them. And when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, This man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, This man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. This is the word of the Lord. Well, as we said last week, Paul began his speech by speaking of uh, the hope of the resurrection and the way this. Reality changed uh, his life, and we looked a little bit of his speech, but we've had to break this up over two weeks because of the length of it. At this point, then, Paul begins to speak about his own personal experience, his personal experience of encountering Jesus and being changed. In a sense, we could say his personal conversion. Then Paul moves on to speak about his ministry. As an apostle, he went to the, the far realms of the earth, where previously he had gone to <coughs> foreign cities persecuting Christians, now he was seeking to establish new churches and doing so. In the midst of this, Paul tells us about his theology of conversion. It's here that he gives us an explanation of what conversion actually means and how it works in a person's life. But third and finally, Paul doesn't end there. He's standing before the royal court. He sees uh, people who are uh, there who are sort of… he's sort of on trial, not exactly, But he even uses that moment to turn and address those in authority and make appeals that they too would convert and be Christians. And as we read the text, we see that there's this third aspect that uh, causes a bit of a reaction. Uh, Festus, who's the governor of the region, interrupts him loudly. And then when he turns to Agrippa, who's the king of a nearby region, Agrippa's response is almost a little embarrassed. He says, "Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian?" I think this is a reminder that in all these manners, talking about conversion can be a little awkward. It implies that someone ought to change. It gets sort of personal and in your business. It's one thing when Paul speaks about his own conversion story. We we can deal with that. We can say, well, that's fine for you. And and, uh, if that's what you want to do, if that's what happened to you, that's fine. I'm okay with that. But then Paul kind of ramps it up as he goes. He speaks of a general call to conversion that he's proclaiming to all people. That's more challenging. He's speaking of a a truth that applies to all people. And, And it's particularly here as it goes beyond the confines of the Jewish people that feathers are ruffled. It's really the reason that Paul is in prison. He's preaching an entrance of conversion into this community of God's people to the Gentiles, those who were historically beyond. So it's here that he begins to ruffle feathers. It's here that he's, he's caused the problems. But Paul takes it a step further, and he actually appeals to the people that are in authority on the trial. And he says, you too, you should change and become like me. And we hear, we hear sort of the, the pushback, Festus who doesn't really make much of an argument, he just interrupts loudly, or Agrippa who sort of politely dismisses, oh, would, would you, isn't that the implication, would you have me be a Christian after such a short time? You in chains before me under my authority are telling me what I should believe. We hear some of that note of indignation. And I think it's one that we can recognize as well. In our modern context, talking about conversion can be a little delicate. Again, people will, won't mind your own story, but if you are making claims about the lordship of Jesus over all people, that's more threatening and challenging. And then, when the, the call to conversion implies that each of us should change and respond to Jesus, that can be more challenging still. Sometimes talking about conversion can be a little awkward. About three years ago, I was visiting my father in the hospital. He had had a heart attack. We didn't know at the time that uh, a second major heart attack would follow in the matter of days, but for the most part, he seemed to be recovering well at the time, but he was in discomfort. And, and i shared just a little bit about the medical discomfort to help you understand the backdrop for the story. He was having discomfort with his catheter. Um, those of you who've had a catheter, I haven't, but I'm aware of the process. You can imagine that's really could be really uncomfortable, and this was particularly bad. I was in the room with him when he had a visit uh, from his urologist uh, and uh, a wonderful young woman who came in to check on him, and uh, you know that's a slightly awkward situation to begin with. Um, However, my father, maybe because of a a a recent near-death experience or maybe just sort of his general life enthusiasm and love for his faith in Jesus Christ, found an opportunity to begin talking with his urologist about faith. Now I think she was awkward, I felt awkward, I felt awkward, and he didn't seem to mind in the slightest. But as the conversation went forward, he suddenly turned to me and he said, well, this is my son's a pastor, and he works right in this community, right next to this hospital. You should go and visit him tomorrow. <laughs> I, on one hand, I'd, I'd like to say I, I was only in an admiration of his, uh, of his courage, but I was uh, mostly embarrassed. <laughs> And I, I said, well, you know, you don't actually have to come. I was sort of diffusing. It. I mean, we would, we would love it, but yeah. all right, I'm feeling awkward here. a urologist So that was probably one of the more uh, awkward conversion conversations I've been a part of. It's not exactly the same thing here, but we get a note of that, and we can realize that we've been in some of those situations, perhaps, where someone's been a little bit overly pushy. Or maybe we've just felt a little threatened. Maybe you're here today and you're, you just wanted to sneak in the back and check this out. And, and here I am talking about conversion. In some ways we're talking to you and you're thinking, I don't even know what I think about this stuff. Our goal is not to manipulate or pressure or, 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 or you know, kind of trick you into something. But the central meaning of this passage is that if Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead, if He is the living Savior and Lord over all the universe, we are each called to respond. And we'll just see these three things as we walk through the passage. First, Paul's experience, then his theology and missions. And third, we'll look at the responses of these people. Uh, First of all, Paul's experience, that's where he starts Uh, he speaks about his own prior condition before he encountered Jesus. It was one summarized by opposition. Uh, He says uh, here in in verse uh, verse 9, he says, I was convinced that I had to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus. He was decidedly against Jesus. He goes on in verse 10 to list the many things he did in opposition. He locked up the saints, He cast his vote against them. So that leads us to believe Paul may have been a member of the Sanhedrin or the religious court of the the Jewish people. Uh, He tried to uh, make them blaspheme. That is, he was trying to get them to deny their faith in Jesus. And and finally, in a raging fury, he took this opposition outward even to foreign cities. So he was going to be zealous in going outward to track this thing down as far as it went. But it was on his road to a foreign city, to the city of Damascus, that everything changed. Paul's story changed because he encountered the risen Christ. Verse 13, it was in the middle of the day and that, that there was a light from heaven as, as bright as the sun, brighter than the sun. It caused him and those traveling with him to fall to the ground. He hears a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? This is his first inclination that he's, he's really going the wrong direction. He may have had others. But this is the first clear message. What he was doing was not pleasing to God. The voice from heaven says, your action, your zeal is opposition against me. You're kicking against the goads. Now this phrase, kicking against the goads, refers to an ox goad. In in the olden days, people would use a, a wooden stick with a metal point and they could move their ox forward to plow something but an ox who didn't like it might kick backwards and in kicking they would only do more harm Uh, what we find in the ancient literature is that this is a very common Greek saying to be used for resisting proper authority or in particular resisting divine authority so the voice from heaven is saying you're resisting divine authority in what you're doing your opposition to this church is opposition to the living God well Paul must know the identity of the speaker verse 15 who are you And the response is, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. And so in this moment, everything changes. Everything everything flips, and Paul has to, he is forced to look at life differently. If Jesus is the risen Lord, if he is the one that all of the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, was pointing to, if he is the fulfillment of what Paul said he and his people had been waiting for, then Paul has to view life differently. So in this moment, everything changes. Some of us have had these moments in our life where everything changes quickly. We get the announcement of a a medical uh, uh, circumstance. It just changes everything. Or sometimes the, the world events around us cause our view of the world to shift and to alter even in a moment's time. Rarely does this happen with good news. Often it's bad news. But... Here, what is for Paul, the uh, maybe devastating announcement that he's been wrong all along is also the pathway into new life. The Lord Jesus is reaching out to him, not condemning him, but calling him in to new relationship and new service. So we see Paul's uh, life before him. We see his encounter with Jesus. And then he gives us a description afterwards. In verse 17, he has the words of Jesus relayed here. He's, Jesus says, I am sending you out to be Uh, messenger to the nations. The, The Greek word here, sending, is worth noting. It's apostello. And from where we get the word apostle. So when we say Paul was an apostle, it means he was sent by Jesus. He was like an ambassador. Jesus said, you're going for me. And so that was Paul's new situation. He had opposed. He encountered Jesus. Now he went with. He changed teams. He changed directions. He was now on the other side. Paul moves from his experience of conversion, and if you were to ask what is conversion or what is Paul talking about, he would say, look at my life. I was opposing God, then I encountered Jesus, and I worked with His purposes. It was that radical shifting and reorientation. But when Paul looks at his ministry, he goes on to talk about the theology of conversion. This is the second thing we see. He describes how he went about being an agent or an apostle bringing a message of the Lord Jesus to the nations around them. He breaks it down into various parts. If you look closely, you can see it. In verse 18, he tells us three things. If you were Again, if you were to say, what is conversion? You could see a case study in Paul's life. But Paul goes on then to say, these are the parts of what I was looking for when I wanted to see other people come into saving relationship with Jesus. First of all, he's sent for this purpose to open eyes. That is, he would proclaim a message that would cause people to see and believe new things. Uh, secondly, uh, then he would, uh, this would result in people turning. An opening of an eyes so that they may turn. And then he goes on, that they may receive forgiveness in a place. Let me just briefly expand each of those things. First of all, the opening of eyes, seeing something new, believing something new. For Paul, this happened ironically when he was blinded. The blinding light from heaven showed him the new and true identity of Jesus and Paul had his eyes opened, spiritually speaking, even as he was blinded. But those, those in ministry that Paul was going to were not meant to have the exact same experience. Paul wasn't trying to replicate the Damascus Road experience for everyone that he would meet. Instead of encountering a vision of the Lord Jesus Christ... Paul and other apostles proclaimed a message. They proclaimed the gospel. When the good news of Jesus is proclaimed and we believe, our eyes are opened and we now account for the world with Jesus as its center. We see an example of this later when Paul speaks of what he's testifying. In verses 22 and 23, he speaks of the way he's generally testifying. He says this, he says, I proclaim these things. Verse 23, that Christ must suffer and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. So Paul opened the eyes of people by proclaiming Jesus crucified and raised from the dead, and his understanding that this means that all people are coming into God's family. This turning is a radical turning. What Paul imagines here is that when we encounter Jesus as the risen Lord, we don't just sort of take that information and add it to the system that we already have as if we know we're kind of doing life pretty well and we'll just take a little Jesus and add that component but what he pictures here is a radical turning. He describes it as turning from darkness to light or turning from the power of Satan to the power of God. A radical turning from our self-control or autonomy to a God-centered life. Uh, but a couple of weeks ago I was rewatching an old movie with my kids. It was called Napoleon Dynamite, and you might remember uh, uh, one of the characters who's running for class president makes this promise. Isn't this like the granddaddy of all campaign promises? Vote for me, and all of your wildest dreams will come true. Right? That's, that's a good vote, right? If he can deliver on that. And that's a, that's a pretty good argument to make to people. Everyone says, I want that. But notice Paul doesn't make that sort of an argument. He doesn't say, come to Jesus and all of your wildest dreams will come true. Instead, he says, your conversion is so deep and profound that your dreams will be changed. Yes, God will meet and fulfill and work in the things that he, 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 the hopes that he gives you and he has great promises. But God's not just adding new power to make your current life work or make your current dreams work, but he's when we talk about conversion, we talk about a reorientation to God that's so radical. Turning from dark to light, from the power of Satan to God, from self-control to God-authority. This is a radical change. In verse 20, this turning is paired with the religious language of repentance. That those who turn radically in this way now are seeking to do things that honor God. He talks about in verse 20 deeds in keeping with their repentance. Paul's vision here, when we encounter the Lord Jesus, is that we are radically changed and that we begin to reorient our life and act differently. And Paul goes on to tell us that the new knowledge, the eyes opening, and the turning of repentance lead to a new standing first with God, then with others. Because you notice the connection here opening of eyes so that they may turn that they may receive the forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me this new standing with God could be characterized by the phrase forgiveness of sins we are righteous now by faith in Jesus with confidence we enter the heavenly throne of grace spiritually speaking We know that God smiles on us as a heavenly father, that we cannot do or say or act in any way to earn his favor, but connected in Jesus, we are righteous in him. What good news this is that Paul brought, but he also adds something to it. He says, we are given a place, that those who respond to the Lord Jesus in faith and repentance are now given a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. We were formerly strangers, the Bible says, but now we are part of God's family. And this is actually where the real controversy arose for Paul, because he was preaching this message of salvation, forgiveness, and belonging in the community, not just to those who had traditionally been part of God's family, the Jewish people, but to all those beyond the Gentiles. And this was threatening the borders of their, uh, of their society. It it was for this reason that he was seized in the temple and they tried to kill him. It's this reason that Paul's in prison today. It's a radical, disturbing message, a deep and thorough conversion that challenges our family, national, and tribal identities. And it nearly cost Paul his life. This is the question, in a way, that Festus has been trying to get at. Festus is going to send Paul forward, he's the governor, he's inherited Paul as a prisoner, Paul's appealed, Festus has to send him forward, and he's got to summarize the case. Paul's given him the answer here, this is why. And he could have stopped here, and yet Paul doesn't. He continues on, he continues to say, I am to this day, I'm standing before great and small saying nothing but the prophets and Moses said would come to pass. My message is grounded in all that God has been doing. But he wants even this audience to hear as well. And so Paul pushes this, in a sense, to the third level. And I think it's here, I think it's for this reason that Festus interrupts. I, I don't know for sure. The text doesn't tell us. This is my personal reading. But I think it's when Paul says, I'm here before you, great and small, Bringing this message of the lordship of Jesus calling you to respond that Festus says, wait a second. He does it with sort of his uh, 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 blunt style. All along we've known Festus as as a dutiful Roman soldier, but he's never shown a lot of interest in these religious arguments. And even here it's not clear that he really follows Paul and he certainly doesn't have a great response. He just gets loud. That's enough. That's enough, he says. You're the prisoner. we I'm the governor. You're not telling me that here. I think that's what's going on. Now, I just want to pause here for a second and, and enter into this situation and think about what we might learn from it. Paul here speaking a message calling for change even in his captors is pretty bold. And I wonder, though, if in a way we might identify a little bit with Festus or with Agrippa before we try to look at this from Paul's perspective. Festus, after all, was a dutiful person. He was deeply committed to what he was doing. Historical accounts tell us he was a pretty good governor. He was better than the one before him. But historical accounts also tell us that his reign would be short. Within a little over two years, Festus would die suddenly, and I don't know why or how. In other words, Festus was incredibly practical in the world he was living in, but his scope was too small. I I think perhaps he would have been interested if Paul could have given him a sales pitch. Listen, Festus, if you say these prayers to Jesus, he's going to help you with all of your problems, all of your wildest dreams, Festus. Just add it into what you're already doing as governor. But that's not the pitch that Paul makes. He presents him with the lordship of Jesus in a way that's costly, challenging, humbling, and doesn't, I don't think it seems immediately practical to Festus. He wants something that's going to work, he wants power, he wants order, he wants to make the system clean. Do you ever feel that way? Do you find perhaps tempting for you to go through life and say, I just want the practical information. I just want to be successful. All right, preacher, will this help me be successful? And the answer is, well, kind of. The, the knowledge of the Lord Jesus, the risen Savior of all things, is going to deeply transform you if you respond in such a way that your very definition of successful will change. But in the short term, it could be costly. Would have been costly for Festus. The majority of people in his country and his region would have been opposed to his conversion. The same would have been true of Agrippa as well. Agrippa is different than Festus. He knows what's going on. That's why Paul appeals to him. He's nominally Jewish. His great grandfather, Herod the Great, built the temple. It's also Herod the Great who, in the Christmas story, tries to follow the wise men back to the manger and in his petty jealousy kills all of the young children under two. So so Paul's standing here before the great grandson of the man who first tried to kill Jesus. He's, He's standing here before the man whose grandfather killed John the Baptist and whose father had killed others in the church, I believe one of the early martyrs in Acts. And so Though he's reasonable, Agrippa is entrenched in his ways. He dismisses Paul. Oh, would you do this so quickly? Would you convert me so quickly? I think sometimes our, often our opposition to Christianity can take the form of being fairly dismissive. You really want me to believe that? This is old fashioned, or this is not in style, or this is this belongs to another people or another time or another place. And Agrippa shifts this to the side. What objections do you find as you think about responding to the Lordship of Jesus? What challenges are placed as you try to respond seriously to the claims of Christ? If Jesus is who He said He is, if He is raised from the dead, if He is the risen Savior, if forgiveness with the living God comes through faith in Him, and if we enter into a new family of God's people, then all of those objections pale in comparison to this good news. Let me finally, though, think about this from the perspective of Paul. He's pretty courageous, isn't he? as I spent the week considering this, I found myself thinking, would I, be, would I be brave enough to speak that way if I was in this setting? It would be awful tempting, awful tempting to just say the absolute minimum to try and have a good case, to get off, to not ruffle the feathers of the people who were going to be holding your fate in your hand as they shipped you off to another trial in Rome. And yet Paul doesn't do that. Paul, standing before the man whose ancestors had done such great harm to God's people, actually is able to view Agrippa as a potential object of God's mercy. The more I think of the context and the setting and the situation, the more awestruck I am by uh, by Paul's boldness and even by his concern for Agrippa. He addresses him and by the end of it he's speaking directly to him Agrippa you believe don't you here in his moment to give a defense for his life Paul's turned the tables he's seen before him in this strange circumstance a strange providence of God an actual evangelistic opportunity an opportunity to share this great news with someone else what enemies will you encounter this week what, what authorities in your life will pose threatening power? Can you see them as potential objects of God's mercy? That's a, that's a challenge, isn't it? I, I feel that within me as we think about it. As, as you think about not only those in your immediate life, but those in our culture and those in our world who pose a threat to you, perceived or real, Are you able to view them as a potential object of God's mercy, where God can be working even there in them? You know, the lesson I take with this is that Paul is more concerned about his message and his ministry than he is his own life. It's challenging for me to think about, isn't it? Paul's not primarily operating here out of an interest in calculating his own personal security and comfort how to maximize the best response on this trial. But he stood here in the moment convinced that God is present, God is at work, and God is accomplishing his purposes. He's more interested in seeing God's kingdom advance than holding on to his own security or safeguarding the identity of his own people. Do we share that sort of priority? Do we share a prioritization of God's kingdom, of God's purposes, that we're able to hold up a hope in the gospel that extends even to our enemies and those that oppose us? Friends, where are you today in conversion? Perhaps you're here as a person who's thinking deeply and carefully about these things, and I would simply ask you, as you weigh out what you would lose and what it might cost, To see the promise and the hope of Jesus. All that is offered as we come to Him in faith and submit to His Lordship. But friends, for those of you today who would speak of your conversion in the past, you've either come into the church or growing up inside the church, you've confirmed your faith, you've intentionally owned it for yourself. Do you see knowing Jesus is the greatest thing we have to offer? Does that prioritize over the other good things, legitimate things you may do? No one's asking you to be intentionally uncomfortable, but the task is challenging us to say, do we share a passion for ministry that makes us willing to follow even when it's hard? Would you join me in praying that that would be so?